There's a, there's a common um, uh, assumption, almost a misunderstanding really, that in order to earn some favor with God, you kind of have to behave yourself. I mean, you guys have heard of this, you may have felt it, you may have experienced it. Uh, it's relatively common around the world and people all over. Uh, for people that are kind of, I've got a great friend who I keep on inviting to church and he keeps on going, I just need to get my life in order first of all. Once I've done that, once I'm in a better place, then I'll come to church. And, um, you know, and, and credit to him, he's, he's trying, but I keep on telling him that's not going to happen. I mean, he'll spend the rest of his life trying to do that. Uh, but also, you know, even as Christians, if, you're, if you have a faith, if you follow Christ, you even get to those points where you, you are having a bad day, you've done some things you're not proud of or you're, not, you're a bit ashamed of, and you suddenly get into this place of going, well, God's not going to listen to me now, is he? And God's not going to pay any attention to my prayers. And we get into this place of going, well, and the only way that God is ever going to listen to our prayers or answer us or have anything to do with us is if we behave ourselves and are always really good. And there's a great term for this, uh, which is a complete waste of time telling or sharing, but I love it. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a great word, isn't it? Moralistic as in you have to behave yourself. Therapeutic as in if you behave yourself, then God will comfort you. Deism, belief. Um, I just found that interesting. Um, but you know, actually, with God, it's completely the opposite. It's completely the other way around. Actually, throughout the Bible, God first demonstrates his love for us. And then, only then, does he, does he give us rules to reveal what he's like. What I want to do is I want to unpack that. And what I want to do is really dive into that and say that actually when we follow those rules, when we follow what he puts in front of us, that actually we have great revelation of who God is and what he longs for us. And so we're going to continue our series in Exodus, uh, and uh, I'm picking up about chapter 19, so if you've got your Bibles, turn to that. But just a quick recap, uh, 400 years, these, the nation of Israel was in slavery, now, they had always been in slavery. They'd never known anything else. They were a family when they moved into there. And then suddenly, um, you know, they're in slavery. They're oppressed. They're crying out to God. And suddenly, this guy called Moses turns up and says, I've heard from God, and, and this is what's going to happen. Now, these are guys that have heard that there have been lots of gods in Egypt. There have lots of ideas. So they didn't really hold with bated breath, but they kind of just waited to see what happened. And then one by one, God made an absolute mockery of the Egyptian gods that people held dear to. So they worshipped the Nile, and the Nile became filled with blood. They worshipped, um, you know, the God that would send flies and frogs and all this stuff. And so God sent a whole load more than they expected. And then they worshipped the sun, you know, the greatest. Who could do anything to mess with the sun? And, and God kind of had a bit of a laugh, and he blotted it out. And they couldn't see it. And so God made an absolute mockery. Now, the funny thing is, is that Israel, all of this time, was standing there going, wow. And they couldn't do a single thing. It was nothing to do with them. They, they couldn't participate. They were just watched in wonder as God did all this. And then, um, and then God gives the first command. I love this. He says, take a lamb and then basically sacrifice it. A very common thing at the time. And then he says, if, you've, if, you've, if your lamb's too big or if there's not enough people in your household to share it, just share it with your neighbors. In other words, God's first command was have a meal together. And hey, if you've got more than enough food, why don't you invite some friends over? What a great first rule, a great first command from God. And then uh, as Kev unpacked a couple of weeks ago, I won't repeat it, but he unpacked the Passover, the deliverance of the entire nation of Israel as they left the slavery in Egypt and they made their way across uh, the Red Sea into, into their journey towards the Promised Land. And then Anin did a fantastic job last week, you'll all agree, I'm sure. And if you're not, check out the podcast, it's brilliant. 
Um, when she talked about provision and how God um, provided for those Israelites in the wilderness when they had nothing, they had access to nothing, yet God continued to provide. And then we get to Exodus 19. So three months later, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And then it says this. And then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Note that very importantly. They did absolutely nothing. They didn't walk out. They didn't fight their way out. They didn't scheme their way out. They were carried out. God literally delivered them. And then he says this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What an amazing promise. God says that I have chosen you and completely accepted you. And now if you obey all my rules in response to what I've done, and then I will show you who I am and I'll show you what I have for you. You can tell a lot about someone um, from the rules that they set, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's at home, in the family, or whether it's just you go in a friend's house and they're a little bit controlling. You can tell a lot about them. It reveals their heart, their values, their, their, what's important to them. But you can also tell a lot about a person who, uh, for who they set the rules for. And so, you know, if you've got kids, you've undoubtedly set rules for them. We're in the process of setting rules for my uh, two-year-old to go to bed. It's just hilarious. It just doesn't work. Um, and now she's, uh, she's in the age where she's learning to copy us. And so we try and put her to bed. She goes, no, two minutes. Stop. Sit down. I'm like, I'm being told off for sending her to bed. This is wrong. But the point is, I'm trying. <laughs> in the same way we set rules for our kids. God sets rules for his kids. You know, we struggle with this, really, because we don't really want a father in heaven. That's not a desire. What we really want is a grandfather in heaven. You see, a father in heaven, you know, he sets the rules because he has intentions for you, and he wants to guard you, and he wants to give you the best life and the best opportunity. He knows you day in, day out. He knows what you're capable of and the, the, the things that you fall into all the time. A grandfather doesn't care. He just wants you to like him. He'll give you sweets. If you cry, yeah, what, you want to watch TV? Great, watch TV. He doesn't care. That's what, we, that's what we're really looking for in God if we're serious, is we want that God, a grandfather. But God is actually a father in heaven. And what I mean by that is he sets rules, not because he's punishing us or because he's being horrible to us, but because he wants to love us and he wants to give us the best in this world. Another way of looking at this, you know, God's rules are not a condition for relationship. They're confirmation of relationship. They're not a condition of his love that he wants to bestow on us. They're confirmation that he loves us and he wants to show that. The rules say that you're loved. I have good intentions for your life before, beyond the short-term um, happiness. And it's once we start following God's rules, it's once we start doing what he sets before us, and following where he takes us, that we actually see what he's like. In other words, we get to gain revelation about God. You see, most of us view God as a, as a kind of travel agent. That he's somewhere distant, sitting behind a desk and telling us how amazing this place we should go to is. And, you know, if, to be honest, he does a good pitch. And 
Some of us buy into it, and what we do is we cash in. We start to live a life a certain way, and we say, okay, well, this is all about where we're going, the destination. And then we get on with life as usual. But actually, God's not like a travel agent. He's more like a tour guide. And what he wants to do is not set you, you know, a, a plan, a picture of where it goes. He wants to take you by the hand, and he wants to take you on a tour. And with his VIP all-access pass, he wants to show you things that you would never see in your walk by yourself. He wants to get, show you access and show you wonders and show you miracles and show you incredible things that will blow your mind that you didn't even know existed or was possible because he longs to take you on that journey himself. He's not a travel agent. He's a tour guide. And so what we're doing now is we're going to look at this. Um, uh, if you flip back a, a verse, sorry, a page. If we, go, if we look at this chapter 19 um, verse, God says that if you obey, if you follow my rules, then he'll show you three things. He'll show you that you will be his treasured possession. More so that he would, um, he would call you a, a holy nation. And then he'll call you a kingdom of priests. And we're going to look at those three, and then I'll finish off. Um, right, so you will be a treasured possession. You know, treasure uh, is, at this time, what it referred to was this idea that a king who owned everything had certain things that he valued dearly. And so he kept them in a special place, in his, his room, if you will. And he protected them, and he loved them, and he wanted them to be just on his, you know, top ornament. God is saying that you that I, that we are his treasured possession, that he loves us. He doesn't just leave us out there, but he wants, to, he wants to polish us and make us the most beautiful things he has. You know, right before giving the Ten Commandments, God says to his people, I am the Lord your God. He doesn't introduce himself as many people would have expected, as I am the Lord the God. He says, I am the Lord your God. In other words, I am personal I am yours. I belong to you as you belong to me. This implies relationship. Israel has done absolutely nothing. They're still getting to know this this God, and yet he says, I am yours. I'm at your disposal. You know, in those days, as I said, people thought there were many gods, and you basically had all these different gods for different areas of your life. And so if you were struggling at work, you had a God for work. If you had a you know, health problem, you had a God for health. And if you, you know, had a, I don't know, car problem, not that they had many cars back then, but you had a God for cars. There were lots of different gods. And, and the struggle was is you had to kind of appease them all. And they all had different demands and different expectations. And so you were forever trying to balance your life, trying to please all the gods. And then God, the real, the one and only God comes along and says No. I am your God. I am your one and only God, the first commandment. You should have no other gods besides me. In other words, stop trying to please everyone. There's a great verse that says you can't please everyone, but you can please God. That's not a verse. I made that up. I'm sorry. Um, But it's true. You can't please everyone, but you can please God. And God is pleased with you before you've even done anything because you've trusted him. And that's it. That's what's so amazing about grace is it just takes your trust in him, relying on him, having no other God. So when you have an issue, you don't go anywhere else. You don't try and solve it in any other way. You go, God, help me with this. Whether it's a family issue, whether it's a health issue, whether it's a work issue, whether it's a whatever issue, you don't go anywhere else and try and get it resolved. You go, God, you are my God. 
my Lord. You are my answer. And God says, yes, yes I am. And I will meet your needs. You see, when we look at that, you know, you kind of see the comparison between what it used to look like, which was kind of politics and keeping everything entertained and everything happy, to a marriage. And the Bible uses that imagery so many times, and it's beautifully done. See, it's a love relationship. It's an exclusive commitment to one God that if we give ourselves fully to, he gives himself fully to us. And so what do you do? You research what pleases him. You find out what makes him happy. Your happiness is tied into his happiness. Truth be told, when my wife is happy, I'm happier. It's simple. <laughs> it's, it didn't take me long to figure that out. When, when our spouse is happy, when our closest friend is happy, you just have a joy about you because you're inextricably linked to them. Imagine being that with God. When you know that God is happy, when you know God is pleased, you are pleased. You, you are full of joy. That's the first one. The second one, is the first revelation of God is that uh, God would call us his treasured possession. The second one is that he would make us a holy nation. You know, when uh, Moses went up the mountain to Mount Sinai to receive the commandments, there was a whole lot of chaos going on. There was a, a massive pillar of fire sticking out the top of the mountain. It looked like a volcano, as it were. The smoke everywhere, thunder and lightning. The whole mountain was shaking. It was fearsome. It was powerful. And Moses goes up and receives commandments, comes back and tells them to the people. And they turn around in Exodus 20, 19 and say this. When they saw, and they, uh, they saw all of this, they trembled and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. They, were, they caught a glimpse of his power. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. That was it, simple. Stop being afraid, no worries. Uh, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you. Now this is the important thing. This is the reason why I'm touching on this. The fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. You see, again, just to remind you, God had done everything. He had delivered the entire nation up to this point. They had done absolutely nothing. And then God gives them the commandments. They're not for God. They're not for God's sake. They're not to, you know, to, to, please, to do anything special for him. They're for people's sake. You see, the whole nation of Israel had been in slavery for as long as they knew and as long as they remembered. They just woke up in the morning and they said, yes, master, I'll do whatever you say. And if they didn't, they died. Simple as. They didn't know the consequences of sin. And so what God was trying to do here, he was trying to say, look, the consequences of sin are serious. They're painful. They're, they're unmanageable. You will crush under them. I want you to avoid them. I want you to not go into sin. I want to do everything possible to keep you away from that because I love you, because I want to protect you from that. And so he, he sets that inside. You see, the goal of the commandments was never to make, take bad people and make them good. It was to take free people and keep them free. And the same thing applies to us today. It's not that God's trying to demand how we live our life because he's fed up with you or anything like that as we so often fall into. He's saying, you are a free people. If you've trusted in me, I have set you free. I want to keep you free so that you can enjoy your life. 
you know, many believe that the first uh, two commandments, that you should have no other gods beside me and, and uh, yeah, that other one. Uh, you should have no other idols. I spent all week looking at the commandments. They are amazing, by the way. I've never done this before. Um, but most people say that actually if you just stick to the first two, that you'll have more than enough. That things will make sense. That if you have no other gods, if you go to God for every single one of your need, and you don't try and get it filled anywhere else, that you'll be a lot more content and a lot more happy. If you, had, if you didn't create idols, and you know, idols can seem like a good idea, but all they end up doing um, is misrepresenting God and misleading you. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this great kind of, uh, has this great commentary on, on the, uh, the bull that they make at the bottom of Mount Sinai. We're not going to go into the story. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you have to read it later, I'm sorry. Um, but they made a golden calf, sorry. And so, um, and so actually what God is saying, uh, what J.O. Packer was saying was if people make an image of God, it kind of feels like they're trying to make an image of God to reflect him. So it has power, it has raw energy in a, you know, a bull. Or, you know, if you look at a bull, it has power, it has raw energy. People are trying to replicate God's power. And they're saying, this is our God, this is an image. But actually all it ended up doing was misrepresenting God. It didn't actually take on, into account all the other attributes that God has, the love, the, the gentleness, the kindness. It didn't take into account the fact that actually it misled them. And so they thought of God like a ball, like a promiscuous kind of going from one thing to another God. I wonder sometimes if we have people that are idols. It's great to have role models. But when we go to other people, when we don't hear from God ourselves, or we don't want to, or don't spend the time seeking God, then we can end up just falling into that place where we put people up on that pedestal. And then we try and become like them rather than trying to become like God. And God calls us to not be a small effect of him, but be the full image of what God has made us to be. And then he gives the other commandments. And most of us know the last few, which are the last from commandment six, which is um, do not murder, do not commit adultery, steal, or covet. But these aren't a list of things not to do, although you probably shouldn't do them. This is more about saying that God values people. And so take the examples of um, money, sex, and power. Always a great sermon topic. You know, actually in those times, um, when people had money, they had money, and they kept it, and they waved it around and said, I have the money, it's mine. When God set the rules, when he set the establishment, he said, no, 10%, you've got to give to the priests and the poor. More so every third year, you've got to give an extra amount. In effect, every year, pro rata, every Israelite was given 23.3% of what they had to the priests and the poor. It was not their money to hold unto themselves. They were given a generous people. If you look at sex, you know, this is the first culture that said that if, um, if a man and woman were committing adultery, it's not just the woman that gets punished. The man gets punished as well. It raised the status of women. It gave them values. It gave them rights that had never before been attributed to them. And then power. It said, consider the foreigners among you. It actually says, consider the aliens, but that's just a bit weird for me. Consider the foreigners among you. Give them the same rights. Don't hoggle the power and rule it over people, but everyone is created equal. And for the first time ever, a nation was created there wasn't just that there was a hierarchy and there were powerful people on the top and whatever they said went and they could break the rules and get away with it. God said, no, everyone is subject to these rules. Everyone is subject to these laws. If anyone breaks them, 
they all receive the same punishment. It doesn't matter how much money, it doesn't matter how much status, it doesn't matter how much power you have, everyone is equal. Basically, God raised the status of every single person to the point where even slaves had rights. How powerful would that be that we would look around the community around us and look at the people that people look down on and we would be the people to go alongside of them and raise them up and raise their status up. Now, I wonder if, it's, if someone uh, came and visited your house, that they would want to live with you. That they would see something dramatically different inside of you. That they would want to be around you rather than anyone else they've bumped into. Imagine you're a colleague that people love working with. Because they just love the way you treat people. It's not just because you're nice, because there's lots of nice people out there. But you really look after people. You really raise them up. There's something special when people come into, counsel, in, into touch with you. Like I was at the hairdressers um, many months ago, as you can tell. Um, and um, I was talking to this guy behind the, uh, who was cutting my hair. Always a scary one when you're talking to someone about Christ and they're cutting your hair. You're like, I really hope they're favorably inclined towards this. Otherwise, it's going to be a mess. And I was talking to him, and, and actually it was a great conversation. And I wasn't feeling 100% that day, and I was just kind of muttering the odd word out. And, I, and he asked me what church I went to, and I said, oh, Vineyard Church. And he goes, oh, I know someone from there. And he goes, oh, great guy. Love him to bits. He's fantastic. And he was talking about a guy in this church called Raphael. And I, oh, man, I left that place feeling so proud. Oh, there he is. Uh, so proud of Raphael. Going, he represented so well. That when someone came into contact with him, they said, oh, I like that guy. He's different. He's spectacular. He treated me with respect. He built me up. Amazing. That's what it is calling a holy nation to be. And then finally, a kingdom of priests. Towards the end of um, Exodus, God unpacks this idea of the tabernacle. And it kind of feels like uh, after the amazing action at the beginning of Exodus, that it's kind of died down and got a bit bit, bit boring. But actually, what we're building up to is the, the grand finale, the whole purpose of Exodus. You see, the nation started out as slaves, and they would end the book of Exodus worshipping their king. They would be free people, ultimately, an ultimate picture of what it means to be free. You see, you've got to understand that every culture in the world believes two things. First of all, that there is this kind of other world that goes beyond our natural world, the supernatural world, if you will. And then secondly, that there's some kind of barrier between the two. And they can only get there if someone mediates that difference. Every nation, every civilization, up until relatively recent, where Western culture has said that, no, we can do it ourselves. And even then, after 100 years of optimism, we're kind of turning around saying, this is impossible. We can't do it ourselves. We need that supernatural world. But every nation believed those two things. And so every nation had some kind of temple or tabernacle or, or shrine or something that would imitate that way of saying, this is how we connect to the other reality. This is how we connect to the other world. But the amazing thing is, is that God gave the instructions for the tabernacle, the temple. In other words, he was saying, you could do whatever you want, but let me be deliberate about making it possible for you to come into my presence and my presence to come to you. It is on my agenda. And so it says in Exodus 40, and then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain, one of 
many barriers, at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then Exodus closes with this. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. You see, from this moment on, they would no longer be a slave nation. They would be a kingdom of priests. They would take the very presence of the supernatural, the very presence of God with them wherever they went. That whatever they encountered a, another culture, or another kingdom, that they would introduce it to the power of God. The only place on the entire world that had a portal to God and they were carrying it with them because God had given it to them. They had a big mission ahead of them. And God said, if you obey me fully, then you will be my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What a privilege. The only problem was it wasn't long before they disobeyed. And although God knew that they would mess up, and he made wonderful provision for it through sacrifices, there would be a familiar cry of God's people. And greatly summed up in Romans 7 was Paul cries out, he says, for my inner being, I delight in God's law. I want to do what God has set before me. I love God. I know God loves me. I want to do what pleases him. But I see another law at work within me, waging a war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner, another slave. The law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am that I keep on messing up. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he finishes. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. The fourth revelation, the fourth thing that this entire rules are pointing to were actually Jesus Christ himself. You see, the rules that were good and they were supposed to bring life ended up just shining light on the things that they did wrong, their inability to keep them. They would forever need another sacrifice on the altar in the tabernacle. And then John writes this in his gospel. The word, the same word that spoke the creation into being, the same word that gave the law to Moses, became flesh and made his dwelling, tabernacled, as it says, among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came to the Father full of grace and truth. Every nation, every culture that has ever existed believes that there is a supernatural world and they need a, something to mediate. There are barriers that they need to overcome. In this, John was saying, there is a supernatural world, there is a God, and Jesus is it. But more so, he's not just on the other side of the barrier. He is the way over the barrier and through the barrier. He is the way to connect with himself, to God himself. As Jesus would put it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when Moses finished the temple, the tabernacle, and he hung the last curtain. He said it was finished. The glory of God fell and just changed everything. When Jesus hung on that cross and said, it is finished. That veil, that barrier between man and God tore in two. 
forevermore. People wouldn't have to go to a special place to meet with the presence of God, that the presence of God would be flooding out of that place and would flood into them through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is awesome. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says this, Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved on letters of stone, came with glory, it was good, it looked amazing, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? In other words, we have every right in the world to expect even more from our Lord, from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. The Spurgeon speaks of the glory that hit his church and that fell on his church. And what a beautiful picture this paints. And I, I wish this for us. I ask this for us. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced. The love of God uh, we, that we had to ask God to stop as we thought we were going to die. Doesn't sound great, but let me finish. If God had not lifted it, we would have died for too much joy. That is the power, that is the presence that is available to you and I today. You see, Christians are not just nice people reformed through effort. We are radically regenerated beings. That very power that delivered Israel, the very power that shook the mountain and struck fear into the hearts of everyone, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, enters into us and goes with us as we go into the world. As we set out as a holy nation, as a kingdom of priests. You see, this isn't just an individual thing that kind of helps us and makes us feel better. You see, this tells us that we are a community of the glory of God. And like the tabernacle, when we, um, sorry, like the glory of God in, in the tabernacle. And we're supposed to be a place of beauty that people can walk in here and be radically impacted by it by the presence of God, by the way we deal and look and act with one another, that we would resemble, that we would show, that we would shout that God is coming back, that he is indeed here. You see, every detail that went into making the temple beautiful, both the finest cloth, the brightest color, everything covered in gold and the smelling of incense, we put all of that effort now into our relationships with one another and with God, the way we love one another, the way we share money, the way we support, the way we build up, the way we look after the poor, the way we care for those who are, who are marginalized, who are oppressed. Because we know what it's like to be oppressed. But God has set us free. We're a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Could the band come back up, please? Let me ask you this first and foremost. If you're, a, if you're someone who uh, would like to be in with God and you're not there yet, you don't feel worthy, you don't feel good enough, you say, God, look at my life. Really, you want that? And then that's good news for you today because you don't have to look at your life anymore. You get to look at Jesus' life. You get to look at the fact that God accepted an entire nation who did nothing right because they didn't know what was right. In the same way that Jesus died on the cross for every single one of us. In other words, he presumed that you would sin. He presumed that you would be sinners. He presumed that you would get it wrong. He knew that was going to happen. And he died for it to make sure that that wasn't the thing that held you back. He set you free so you could be free. 
He says, I want you to be mine. I want you to be my treasured possession. I want to be your God so I can call you mine. That I can form you into holy people, a holy nation. And then I can send you out as a kingdom of priests. Would you guys stand and let me pray? This is a great day to come to know Jesus. This is a great day to have no other gods before him and choose him first and foremost for everything. And this is a great day to remind yourself that you are not here by accident. You're not here by chance, that God rescued you. He delivered you for a purpose, to set you free, that you may be a kingdom of priests, that you may go and take the very power into the world, the good news, so that others could be set free from it. I'm finished with this quote and then I'm done. You asked for a loving God. Well, you have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy or meticulous magistrate. Not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. But the consuming fire himself. The love that made the world persistent as an artist's love for his work. Provident and venerable as a father's love for a child. Jealous and unstoppable. That is your God. Let's worship.